Thanks, uh, guys, for doing that. Thanks to Lauren, my uh, lovely young niece, who's come across to help us on the guitar today. Really appreciate that, Lauren. We're a little bit short this week, on, on this month, on musicians with people on holidays and whatnot. And uh, Laurel asked her niece, and she kindly said yes. So thank you very much, Lauren. Really appreciate that. It's a blessing when uh, God gives gifts and talents to people, as we've said here numbers of times, because it's a real encouragement to us as they encourage and lead us to worship our great God and Saviour as well through uh, these songs and music. So uh, we do thank God for that in every way. Uh, Today, as I said, we are working through our top four questions series, the four questions that we got people to ask their friends and family and workers and wherever they went to over the last uh, few months. And uh, today's question we're looking at, which is a big question, is uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Or you could put this in a number of other things that come out of that same heading is uh, pain and suffering in this world. Uh, Just the challenges of evil and the challenges that confront us as we all uh, touch this issue here of pain or suffering or bad things happening uh, in our lives. Uh, It's a huge question. It's a huge question. Uh, It's an issue that really does run close to the heart, I think, of every single person. Uh, If you haven't experienced suffering at this point in time, or or evil, or bad, uh, just stick around, it will come. It finds every single person. So don't don't be thinking, am I going to get through without it? No, that won't be the case. I don't for a moment here to proclaim to have all the answers for every sort of nitty-gritty detail of what is behind what we go through, what are the challenges we go through. So no one can actually do that. No one can sort of say, well, this is why that happened. You know, you might have some pointers, but you can't give detailed answers for exactly why this evil uh, may have taken place. Not at all. The problem of pain and suffering runs really, really deep in this world. It really does. Uh, Any person in their right mind can't help but feel something for another person when they see them go through... Uh, the trials and challenges of life, and they see them gripped by pain. It really does uh, go deep in this world, and we can't help but be touched by that when we see that taking place. Uh, the reality of pain or suffering and evil uh, comes in all types of scales. All types of scales. Uh, you've only got to go back on a global scale a couple of years ago to Haiti. You know, it's only back five or six years ago, which seems like a long time, but it's not that far back. With that devastating earthquake in Haiti, like in a matter of A few earth-shattering minutes, 200,000 people are killed. 200,000 people are either buried alive or crushed to death in an earthquake. And on top of that, there are 2 million people homeless after that matter of just a few minutes of that earthquake. That's a real global scale when we think about the enormity of pain and suffering that it comes. Just massive numbers, massive numbers. Or as John just alluded to again, we've seen the pain and suffering on the streets of Melbourne just only a few days ago. Uh, Some young guy in a rampage in a car. I mean, all of us have probably walked up and down some of those streets in Melbourne. And here he is just plowing through people on the footpath. It really is on large scales at times. You've got to think about now the three people that are killed and those that are critically injured. Five, is it? Five now have been killed. And those that are still critically injured and all the connections of those people and families and people who saw it becomes a large scale where that takes place. It's a personal scale as well. It's a very personal scale. Sometimes it's it's down to just one person. I know for myself, uh, my father died when I was 14 years old. I was just only a few weeks short of um, 15 and our family watched our father suffer through cancer and die. Various uh, chemotherapy treatments and multiple trips to Melbourne to doctors and hospitals and all types of things. And it was just a very personal thing that we went through in our lives over not just a matter of days or weeks, but a matter of years, actually, with with the way my father died. In the last few weeks of his life, we saw our father, who was a fit, robust, hardworking man, basically shrivel away to a weak shell of a person. Just the ravages of cancer. And again, that's a personal suffering that we experience, perhaps just in a, in, a, in a smaller scale. Others have felt the same thing. Others have felt the same thing with the death of loved ones. Some here have probably experienced the loss of a stillborn child. It's a very personal suffering. It just comes down to sort of a very sort of unique sort of scale there. And they are very, very tough and difficult times. Suffering takes on uh, sizes and proportions as well through life. Some people just seem to breeze through life with very few speed bumps, as it were, of suffering or pain or bad things along the way of life. We look at them and they just seem to be gliding through week after week and not much is really happening in their lives. 
And then on the other hand, you look at other people and they seem to just barely climb out of one deep, dark hole of trouble and they just seem to stumble into the next deep, dark hole of trouble. Some people just seem to go from week to week and they can't seem to barely get their head above water sometimes. It does come in various sizes and proportions. And we look on on those people and say, how do they keep going? How can they keep getting up again after the dramas they've been through and they get up and they face it all again the next day or the next week? It does come in all sorts of sizes and proportions as well. Uh, pain and trouble and suffering. It really is a sad, sad reality of this world that we live in. It is. It's a reality of the world that we live in. So the question we have is, how do we explain this pain and suffering? How do we make sense of these trials and setbacks of life when we supposedly live life trying to just do the right thing, but these things come our way and they find us and they cause us all types of grief? Well, this is where we want to go today as we think about these bad and painful things that take place in this world uh, for ourselves. And we want to look at this from a few possible viewpoints. What we'll do is we'll just make a brief comment on a secular or natural worldview when it comes to dealing with pain and suffering and the challenges of life. And then secondly, we'll do a brief comment on Eastern religion perspectives, on how they perceive suffering and troubles in life. And thirdly, we will closely look at a Christian worldview of pain and suffering, how we make sense of that from a Christian perspective. And today what we'll put in place is like a framework. There'll be lots of sort of uh, skeleton frame ideas, not so much the meat on the skeleton, because you could do a whole series of talks over a whole number of weeks to try and go through the nitty-gritty detail. But today, I'd like to put a framework in place, and perhaps that might raise some questions. And feel free, if you have a question, at the end uh, we'll have a QA. and a If you've got some questions, um, we'll try and explore some of that as well. So it'll be a framework we put in place as we think about a uh, natural or secular worldview, an Eastern religion perspective, and then more a closer, uh, perhaps more detailed look at a Christian worldview of pain and suffering as we see it intersecting and engaging with our lives. Firstly, a secular or natural worldview. In many respects, the uh, natural worldview cannot help us at all or with great uh, detail when it comes to pain and suffering as in giving us an answer or giving us an understanding for it in our lives. It really can't do much for us there. If you take an example of the, um, the drug epidemic ice that's out in our community now, Uh, It's a real thing that's causing lots of suffering to individuals and also the families that are connected with these people. It's causing all types of grief. When it comes to the the natural worldview or the secular worldview, which is not a God-centred perspective, what they will normally fall back to is more education, more laws and more penalties. Not saying they're bad things, they can be good things, but they don't give us a deep understanding or get down to the foundation of what's happening here with this idea of the suffering or why it's caused or where it's coming from, but particularly when it's this idea of uh, the drug ice. But it does. It comes back to uh, more education, more laws and more penalties that hopefully will curb the fallout from this um, problem of ice and the suffering that it causes to individuals and the families that are associated with that. But the end result of that is what we see continually on our news. There is just continually this rise of the drug epidemic ice despite more education, despite more laws and despite more penalties. It really can't get in there and actually touch the deep core of where this is coming from. Or the Western world also, from a secular point of view, uh, the, the last thing anybody wants in this life, and it's a natural thing, nobody goes out looking for suffering. We don't want suffering in our life. So the Western world, in a way surrounds itself with all the comfort and ease we possibly can, as it were, to protect ourselves from suffering. So we develop more and more technology and more and more creature comfort devices to, as it were, build up a barrier or a protective wall away from suffering to make life easier and more comfortable. Now, I'm not against technology and I'm not against creature comforts. Uh, We love these fans that are spinning around here because otherwise we would have suffering from heat to some extent. So I'm not against that at all. So don't get me wrong when I'm saying, okay, Todd, where are you going with this? All I'm saying there is is they don't really want to, or they don't get into the heart of the issue where suffering is. They'll just try and put more comfort in our place or more ease in our place to protect us away from suffering. Not so much try and help us to understand 
where this suffering comes from. It's the way this Western world lives in its affluence and its comfort. That is its sort of answer for suffering. More comfort, please. So this worldview can't really help us a great deal in trying to get underneath why we're living in a world that is suffering with evil and why pain is uh, part of our lives. Eastern religions, some of the Eastern religion worldviews try to view suffering as an illusion or not a reality. If you get involved in some of those, some of them actually go to this point, it's only an illusion. It's not a reality in your life, this suffering that we go through. Now, I'm not sure how far anybody can take that because if somebody has an accident and they've got a broken leg, it's not an illusion, is it? It's not an unreality, it's a reality. You feel the pain. Uh, but that is how some Eastern religions look at uh, pain and suffering. Other Eastern religions work on the idea of karma. You've all heard of that, good karma, bad karma. Now, the idea is there is what you sow is what you reap. What you sow is what you reap. So the idea then that comes out of that is if I live a good life doing good to others, then good will follow me. This then is the path to happiness and true peace in the idea of karma and some Eastern religions. Now to be fair to that, there's an element of truth in that, isn't there? What you sow is what you reap. If you go and punch somebody in the nose, there's a very good chance you'll get a punch in the nose back. It just happens. If you go and put somebody's rubbish out on the, on the contrast to this for your neighbour, there's a very good chance when you're away he'll put your rubbish out. So if you do bad things to some people, they will do bad things back to you. And if you do good things for people, often they will do and return that favour and do good things for you. There is an element of truth in this idea of karma. But the real reality is, even if we do all the good things we possibly could do in this world, bad things will still happen in our lives. So that doesn't give us a complete understanding or a complete explanation to why these bad things happen to us or what's happening in and through them. So there's a couple of worldviews, only like in brief point form. And if you want a, uh, an explored look at that, there's a book called, uh, written by John Dixon called If I Was God, I Would Take Away All the Pain. I don't think Barbara's got it over there, but we could get it if you wanted to. It explains all these worldviews and how they deal with pain and suffering. There's a snapshot of the natural world and perhaps Eastern religions when it comes to dealing with suffering and pain. Christian worldview, though. Here's where we want to explain this in a bit more detail. The suffering that we go through through evil and pain and uh, devastating things from a Christian perspective. And the Christian perspective holds God right in the middle. When we say a Christian worldview, this is with a God who sits in the middle of this world, uh, above and beyond and completely in and through, uh, holding all things together. And to know about this God who sits in the middle of everything, from a Christian perspective, we go to the Bible. We go to the Bible. Now again, as I said last week, I want to say a few words about this Bible because it's the book that Christians build their lives on. It's the truth that's contained in here that believers of Christ, followers of God, build their lives on the truth that is contained in the pages of this book. We don't worship a book. We worship the God who has written this book. Unfortunately, the Bible is often attacked for its reliability. People say, how can you believe a book that was written 2,000 years ago? Actually, some of those parts are written uh, 3,500 years ago. How can you really believe? Hasn't the Bible changed? Hasn't what was there three and a half years? How, how do we know it's the same today as what it was back three and a half years, thousand years ago? Well, we can. We can see that this book is the most authentic and consistent piece of literature of all time. Of the billions and billions and billions of books that have been written, this is the most reliable, the most absolutely solidly reliable book of all time. It's without fail. Um, to get reliability and authenticity to say, okay, how do we know these people are saying the same things today as last as three and a half thousand years ago? The Bible, as I said last week, has 20,000 manuscripts. That is copies of the original documents when this Bible was written. And these manuscripts maintain the authenticity of the Bible. When you line all these manuscripts, which are copies of the original documents together, they don't vary Basically, at all, you might have a few commas in the wrong in the wrong place and a couple of spelling mistakes here and there. But the core message of the Bible remains the same. And here's twenty thousand copies of these original documents that actually say, "Hey, it's the same thing we read three and a half thousand years ago as we have today." Comparison for that is this: 
We have the, uh, the famous writings of uh, Plato. You would have heard of him, the Greek philosopher. He puts a writing together quite a long time ago. And everybody takes those writings as gospel truth. We read the writings of Plato and nobody doubts that. Nobody doubts what he's written all those years ago, probably uh, 3,000 years ago. Of these writings of Plato, we have less than a handful of manuscripts to actually testify is it the same thing we're reading a few thousand years uh, that he wrote a few thousand years ago. And some of those manuscripts, uh, the closest ones, are more than a thousand years after the original documents were written. So there's just some authenticity and reliability here for the Bible as we think about that. That it stacks up and it's the same thing we read today as it was uh, written three and a half thousand years ago. The Bible is written, as I said last week, is written over 1,600 years across 60 generations by 40 plus authors from different walks of life, different places, different moods, different continents, three languages, writing on hundreds of different subjects. And yet when this is all brought together, all of these writers write in absolute harmony. Absolute harmony. They are writing in total unity. Every writer and writing points to a sovereign God who ordains everything in this world. Every writer and writing points to a divine being who knows the beginning from the end. Nothing has escaped the mind of God. And not only that, this book, three and a half years old, or part, this book is a book today that still changes the lives of people every day transforming the lives of people and bringing them into a glorious relationship with a sovereign creator God. This book is authentic and totally reliable. So I can turn to it with absolute full confidence, absolute full confidence, particularly when I think about pain and suffering and evil. There's two things that the Bible does for me as I grasp or as I begin to think about and grasp this uh, very large idea. And the first thing is the Bible helps me to make the best sense of what's going wrong in this world and why it's gone wrong. It gives me an understanding of this. And not only does it give me an understanding, it gives me something that no secular worldview or any Eastern religion worldview can give me. The Bible actually gives me hope, real hope, that I can bank my life on. So that's why I turned to the Bible, because it's absolutely rock solid here in uh, the confidence that God has inspired this word, It makes sense of this world, and then it gives me hope. Okay, so what does the Bible say here about pain and suffering then as we think about that? Uh, The Bible is a book that has been inspired by God to communicate his truth to us, and God has used human authors who have experienced all of life, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. It's a collection of stories that tell one story. And these stories that are all linked together and pulled together with one story are stories of pain and they are stories of pleasure as we read through the scriptures. The Bible knows all about suffering. The Bible knows all about the evil and the pain that we face in this world. The Bible starts with the creation of man in Genesis. In the beginning it tells us in the very first verse that God created the heavens and the earth. And as we saw previously, that mankind is a special creation of God, uniquely created by God for special purposes, and namely that was to glorify Him, as we explored that last week. In this special creation of God, mankind has been created with a free will, uniquely sets us apart. We have freedom to make choices, freedom to do as we please, and where we like. And some of us will make really good choices and we will choose to bury for Collingwood as a football team. Yeah. And others will take a second rate choice and probably pick some other team. But we have a free choice. We can make a choice. That's what we have as human beings. God did not create us as robots, as Ottomans. God created us with free will, free choice. When God created man, Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden and he put one tree in the garden. And he said, don't eat from that tree. Do not eat from that tree over there, wherever that tree was uh, in the garden. That tree was there to remind Adam and Eve that you are not God. God is God. You are not God. It was like a delineation there of what they could do and what they could not do. So God said, if you eat from that forbidden tree, you will die if you do that. Genesis 2, 16, 17 tells us that. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Could have been an apple tree. Everybody often says it must have been an apple tree or you get those pictured apples. It doesn't really say it was an apple tree. It just says of that tree. It could have been a Mars bar tree. Probably wasn't. Both Adam and Eve had free choice, free will. They could do as they pleased within that garden. All except for that one tree that God said, don't eat from that tree. With this free choice, this free will that Adam and Eve had, they made a really, really bad choice. They chose to disobey God and go to that very tree that God had said, don't eat from that tree. The Bible calls that sin, disobeying God. And the consequences that we saw in that verse of that sin, to eat of that tree, is death. God said, when you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And what we know about death is that pain and suffering comes with death. So God's judgment upon their disobedience was that they would suffer by now living in a world where death had now arrived. Up until that point in time, there was no such thing as death. It was not there. No animals had died. Nothing had died. It was a living, breathing, growing world at that particular time. But now they've uh, rebelled against God and they've earned God's judgment upon them and now death has arrived. And not only did God allow death to come into the world, but he also cursed the world or brought upon the world a frustration or a futility because of mankind's rebellion. And we can see this also here in Romans uh, chapter 8 where Paul talks about this very same thing thousands of years later. He says this in Romans uh, Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so Paul's talking about sufferings here that they're experiencing back then, back then, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. That's this futility and the earth, as it were, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So not only did sin bring death into the world, but also God, to give them a very vivid reminder of what sin is all about, subjected this world now to uh, futility, frustration, uh, a broken order. So Creation has this sense of futility about it. And we see this in many, many, many different ways. We have a dog at home at the moment. It's about to have pups, probably in the next seven or eight days. Now, because of the futility and the sense of disorder that God's placed upon this world, there's a very real chance that one or two of those pups could die. That is a, that is a demonstration of of the brokenness of this world, of the disorder or the futility of this world. That's a result of sin. Here's another example. Someone may go and plan an outdoor wedding, get everything set up, the flowers in the right place, get all the musicians happening, get the chairs all seated out, get the arch in the right place, and it's all fantastic. You plan the outdoor wedding, and you rock up on Saturday afternoon, and a massive thunderstorm comes over and is a futile exercise of trying to have a wedding in the outdoor. That is a sense of the disorder that God has placed upon this world. People will suffer through that. You might think that's a minor suffering for some, but it's a sense of frustration. It's a result of the sin and the judgment of this world that God has placed upon us. Uh, The world racks and reels under the pain of earthquakes and tornadoes. Just look at the avalanche in Italy just the last few days. That again is a sense of the futility and the disorder this world is in because of mankind's rejection and rebellion before God. The short answer then for suffering, the short answer for suffering then is that humanity's rejection of God as our sovereign creator, what the Bible calls sin, is the underlying factor for all pain and suffering in this world. We're not going to give the minute detail, but here's the foundational cause for why we suffer for why this world is, uh, in a sense, a futile exercise in many things. That doesn't stop us from trying to do things, but when we go and plant a garden, all these weeds come up. 
The underlying factor for all this futility and the disorder that we live in is sin, is mankind's rejection of God, and we reap all of these consequences from that. As I said earlier, the Bible's a fantastic book. Its writers are under the inspiration of God and they've recorded exactly what God wants them to record and the stories they recorded are real stories. And these stories are generally stories of real pain associated with them. And what I find as I read through this is that as they write out of this real pain, they write with an unbelievable hope at the same time connected to these stories and actually becomes a major thread right throughout the Bible is the hope that God gives. So what I want to do now is just quickly engage with the Bible, how it sees our pain and suffering uh, in life. Suffering, as we said before, can fall disproportionately. The Bible absolutely identifies with people who are struggling with enormous loads of suffering while others seem to cruise through life with small amounts of suffering. You've only got to turn to Psalm 73, a fantastic psalm in the book of Psalms in the Bible. And here we see the follower of God riding out of his heart's pain at that time and he sees the people who are acting wickedly. He sees the people who are just living life in total rebellion before God. And he looks across there and he sees they just never seem to get caught doing anything wrong. Actually, they just go from one lie to the next lie, from one deception to the next deception. And I can't work it out, God, because they seem actually to be prospering in life. And I'm here as a follower of you, and I seem to be struggling in life. He gets a big picture view, though, and sees the end result of where those people who uh, live so rebelliously before God will they'll end. But the take-home point there from Psalm 73 is the Bible identifies this when we feel like there's disproportionate suffering in our lives. There's unexplainable suffering in the Bible. Unexplainable suffering. Now, it's things that uh, when we, like, uh, we are full victims, as it were, of totally innocent circumstances in life. And perhaps an example of that is um, like the, some of those con men who pray on the elderly people and ring them up and sort of say, you've got a problem with your bank account or you've got a problem with such and such. If you just give me your bank details, I'm about to fix the problem up. And they um, poor elderly people go and give the bank account details over and then they go and empty their bank account of all the money. I mean, that's sort of an example of an innocent-like suffering in that sense. Well, the Bible completely identifies with that as well. It comes along there and it puts us right in that same picture. There's a man by the name of Job who suffered unimaginable loss. Unimaginable loss. In one moment he lost his entire family in business. He's literally sitting within his home and a number of servants come back and literally one after another, and it's, it's, it's the most um, incredible couple of chapters of the Bible, they come into Job's office or his room, wherever he might be in this house, and he said, Job, you'll never believe what happened. Lightning fell from heaven and killed all the livestock in this paddock. The Sabaean raiders come from another country and they just took all their cattle away and killed all the workers. Another servant walks in, I was just near your eldest son's house and a violent tornado has come and it's just crashed the house down and all of your sons and daughters are killed in the house. It's just unimaginable. And this is what a real man called Job goes through. Absolute devastation. The Bible identifies with that. The Bible speaks into that. And for us, it's no different. We can sometimes come across stuff in life that is just unexplainable. We cannot put any rhyme or reason behind it. We may sit there and think, why me? Why has this happened now? And we can't get an explanation. I can assure you Job had no idea why that was happening, when that was happening. And often there will be no answers to those questions. There will be no answers to those questions. And that hurts as well when those questions aren't answered. But the Bible identifies with us through the book of Job in that. As Christians, our sufferings aren't wasted. They're not wasted. God will often use them for his purposes. Here's a few examples here where God takes the challenges of the sufferings, the pain of our life, and uses that. Sometimes suffering, pain or distress in our lives will be for our discipline, for our discipline. Sometimes God will lead us into suffering because he will use that as a form of discipline for us in our training or correcting as we grow as followers of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 6 and 7 tells us that. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's not an enjoyable thing to discipline. We discipline or have disciplined our four children with physical disciplines earlier in their life. And they've had a few um, straps or wax. And uh, it's not enjoyable for me to do that, and I'm sure it's not enjoyable for them to receive that. But it's part of discipline, it's part of training. And God will sometimes allow us to uh, lead us to, into suffering or difficult times to train us or discipline us, correct us, or reform us. That's what God does sometimes with some types of pain and suffering in our lives. Sometimes we suffer for God's purposes as he carries out his sovereign will in this world. Genesis chapter 50 verse 18 to 20 has a story here of Joseph. And this is how Joseph sees the sufferings that he went through. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. If you trace the story of Joseph, he had a hell of a life. Hated by his brothers. Eventually his brothers sold him into a slave uh, caravan off to Egypt. So he was treated as a slave, dumped in a hole, got to Egypt, uh, went and worked in a fairly rich man's, uh, wealthy man's house. Uh, The wife of the rich man um, lusted after Joseph and then he wouldn't respond to her lusting desires. So she framed him up, got him put in prison. And you can imagine what the prisons are like in Egypt back then. It just went from disaster to disaster to disaster for Joseph. But eventually he got restored out of prison and then became this um, second in charge for uh, under Pharaoh. And actually then Jacob and his family came up and were restored from a bad drought that was in Israel. So it's a huge, huge story. But here's Joseph giving like a, a one or two verse summary here of what take place. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You brothers, you planned evil against me. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God sometimes will take our challenges in life, our deep pain, and he will fulfill his sovereign purposes at it, and he will bring good out of it. Now, Joseph probably wouldn't have seen that until way after all the event took place. He wasn't thinking that when he was in the pit being sold to the slave traders or in the middle of an Egyptian dungeon. He wasn't thinking about this good coming out of this somewhere. He was just feeling pain. But we can see with the benefit of hindsight, that's what God does sometimes with our sufferings. Suffering can bring us to God. Pain and trial and challenges can sometimes be used by God to bring us to see him when we can't see him. It's amazing how God takes really hard times in our lives and uses that, as it were, to sort of pull back all the the fog and the mist that we've allowed into our lives and that God clears this vision that we can see God in the middle of our pain. Here's a fantastic verse in Job 36 that talks about that. Job the great sufferer. He delivers the afflicted, so that he is God. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and he opens their ear by adversity. This is something that God does in the middle of pain, in the middle of challenge. He takes these really hard times and he peels back the fog of despair and the mist of pain and he begins to reveal himself as a great saving God in the middle of that pain and the middle of that suffering. There's a great quote by that author, C.S. Lewis, who says this about pain. He says, God whispers in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain and adversity is God's megaphone to a deaf world. When we are just cruising along in life, generally the last thing we are thinking about is God. Generally the last thing we are thinking about is God. But when trouble and pain and drama comes along, it's amazing how loud God becomes then. He begins to, as it were, peel these layers of confusion back and there he is. And I've heard of countless stories, 
countless stories of people who have discovered the real and true living God in the middle of pain and suffering. They are not wasted. In the middle of pain and suffering, we often cry out, what is wrong? It becomes a heart cry. It's here where God says and begins to reveal himself to us as we begin to question ourselves, something is wrong. God doesn't waste pain and suffering in our lives. He begins to pull back these clouds and reveal himself to us. We would call that God's severe mercies. Severe because they are trials. But they are mercies because God reveals himself in the middle of those severe trials. The Bible, though, is unlike anything else in this world when it comes to not only offering an understanding or giving us a sense of this pain, but it offers real hope. Real hope. Hope that we can bank our lives on. Eastern religions and the Western world cannot give us any concrete hope when it comes to suffering, but the Bible does. It won't give us all these nitty-gritty details of what's behind all this or explanations to suffering, but it offers real hope and ultimate deliverance from our sufferings that we go through as well. And this hope and this deliverance that the Bible offers comes in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the hope that the Bible gives. God has entered into this world. Absolutely, amazingly, God has entered into this world through the body of a man. Jesus became the ultimate example of suffering. The ultimate example of suffering. He's the only human being who's ever truly lived a completely innocent and obedient life before God. The only one. And yet the ruling people of Jesus' day hated him so much that they had him put to death. He's the ultimate example of suffering. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 10 as Peter is sharing the gospel with these people in Samaria. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, his Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That was Jesus' mission, as it were, to reveal the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, and to release the captives from those who were oppressed from the devil. He went about doing good. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Jesus, the ultimate example of suffering, only went about doing good, hated him for it because they were revealing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day and the ruling parties of the day. And he then dies on their beckoning and their command. Jesus dies a brutal, brutal death. Jesus takes a death of pain and suffering and complete isolation. And yet he has done not one thing wrong. Jesus is nailed to the cross as our hope, as our deliverance of suffering because of the sin that we've committed in this world. Ultimately, Jesus dies the death we all deserve to die because we have all sinned. He takes our place on the cross so that we can be brought back to, into God in a right relationship with him. And what Jesus offers us today is if we place our trust in him and turn from our sin, he offers that hope of forgiveness for us and that hope of relief eventually from suffering and the forgiveness of all sins. And this hope comes in two ways. Two ways. This hope comes in a way of sustaining hope. Not necessarily a hope that takes the trial away or a hope that sort of removes everything out of our lives, but it's a sustaining hope. And we see a picture of that in 2 Corinthians. Paul is suffering with some type of problem with his eyes. And he says here in chapters, uh, chapter 12, 8 and 9, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, take it away. God, take this away. God, please take this suffering away from me. Take it away, Lord. But Jesus answered. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Jesus promises sustaining hope. Yes, sometimes God will take all of our pain and suffering away. And praise God when he does that. 
And sometimes God will not take it away, but he will always give us sustaining grace or keeping power through and during those trials. That is one hope, and that is a sure hope. The other hope is this. It's an eternal hope. One day this world will be done away with and everything will be made new. This world will end. And this includes suffering and pain. It will end as well. This is the hope that Jesus gives. And he says it here in Revelation 21, the end of the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Nothing else can offer that. No secular worldview can offer that. No Eastern religion can offer that. There's only one person who can offer that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Ultimately, we have an eternal hope. Yes, we can be right in the middle of pain and suffering to all sorts of degrees where it feels like I can't survive another day. Jesus will give you grace to survive. And he will ultimately relieve you of this suffering whether you are killed in this world or die or whether Jesus returns. And then we are promised a new world where there is no pain, there is no crying, there is no sadness. Nothing else can offer that except Jesus Christ and him alone. This is the hope that he offers. We can't give all the answers for why bad things happen to good people. What we do know, though, is really there are no good people. Everybody deserves, actually, bad things. It's amazing we get any good things in our lives. We really want to turn that around. But Jesus offers forgiveness and he offers hope. So as I close today, here's my closing thoughts. If you're in the middle of suffering, if you're in the middle of really uh, terrible pain, whether it be physical, mental or emotional, and they are real pains associated there, real challenges. If you're a believer in Christ, I say, hold on, hold on. Cling closely to Jesus. Cling closely to your body of believers who support and encourage you to help you to hold on to Christ. And he will give you sustaining grace. He will give you sustaining hope that will keep you moving on. If you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Jesus and you are totally confused about life and you are in the middle of pain and in the middle of drama and challenges and suffering, you need to come to Jesus. Jesus calls today. Come to me, all those who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus will take that burden upon you and off you and give you the strength to carry on in life. He is the only hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today that we're able to open up your word and see how it explores through life and identifies with the pain and the suffering that we all go through in varying degrees. Uh, Lord, today I ask and I pray that you would uh, help us afresh to focus on Christ who has come uh, to give us sustaining hope, to give us hope in the middle of this pain. God, for those today who feel like they can't go on perhaps another minute or another hour, God, I pray that you will just continue to reveal yourself to them in this grace and in this hope. And God, if you should see so fit to do so, I pray that you would relieve them of this suffering and remove it from their lives. In that, Lord, we pray, not our will, but your will be done in that situation. God, for those who are totally confused by suffering and evil in this world, I pray that you will uh, today give them the ability to come to you, that you would call into their hearts even right now as I speak, and they would see perhaps Jesus for the very first time, and that, Lord, he would be revealed as a glorious saviour. God, today help us to be a people who really reach out into the community that we love around about us here in this greater Shepparton area. That we would reach out as a, as a hand of listening and a hand of help and a hand of support for those who are suffering so that we could point them and lead them uh, to Jesus Christ, the only answer. Help us today to be that people, I pray, Lord. It's so easy for us to not want to enter into somebody else's world of suffering, but Lord, give us the ability to do that, I pray so we could point them towards Christ. God, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done for us and, uh, Lord, the way you do keep us and sustain us. 
God, I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions? Jane. It may appear nothing to most people, but to those who experience Christ and know Christ, it's the world of difference. It's the world of difference. And it's a supernatural work, Jane, that God does in conversion. Okay, It's a slow progression. Like you said, maybe you don't have understanding, and you've got good understanding, I know that, but we're all growing in that understanding. And what, do, what God does is the Holy Spirit in conversion comes and makes us new people. And begins to transform our mind. So our mind is, is probably one of the major things in suffering. I'm not saying we don't feel physical suffering. We do. I mean, when somebody breaks my arm, I feel real pain. But it's, it's what happens in my mind in the middle of suffering that becomes a big drama. Because if I'm in, in long-term suffering, my mind just starts to, as it were, get very, very dark and very, very close. Thinking, is this how life's going to be? Is this my life sentence for the rest of my life? Am I just trapped in this world of pain? So the mind becomes a very powerful thing. So what happens in conversion, the Holy Spirit comes and gives a whole new radical understanding that this is not the end, it's real pain, but even in the middle of this real pain, Jesus actually comes and gives real hope. Now I can't explain that real hope other than it's a work of the Holy Spirit within us to give us sustaining hope in the middle of it. Now what can happen with people who don't have that they don't have this conversion. They don't have the Holy Spirit of God come and begin to, as it were, give them a new heart and a new mind to think very differently about all this. They get trapped in that really dark place in those long-term suffering situations. And if it gets works its way out to the, to the long degree, some of them may even go and take their lives because they can see no way out. And they think, well, this is the way out. I'll just end it all. That's, that's what a darkened mind, not lightened, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, possibly can go to. So the difference is, is Christ. It is the supernatural work that he does in conversion to renew our minds, to get them thinking right through that. So yeah, it sounds glib, is that all? But if you experience that, it's life-changing. Good question. Rob. Todd, um, sort of tied in with this question is... Uh, why bad things happen to good people is often people, the unbelievers, may say, well, God has caused this. God is the author of this, rather than just say, oh, well, God's allowed it. Uh, and, you know, the story of Job or God disciplines his son sort of doesn't really help in this way. So yep. perhaps you might have a comment about that. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a challenging concept when we think about um, the God who knows the beginning from the end, the God who sovereignly reigns over all things. Uh, there's some stuff that we just can't explain, and that is, that is the, the, the sovereign position of God um, who does and is in every single thing, the good and the bad of life. Uh, and there's this position of man's responsibility that sort of rides alongside this, that we are responsible for all the actions and choices that we take. And sometimes we make bad choices, you know, someone will choose to inject themselves with drugs or whatever and they'll get really bad consequences from that. And so in that, you know, I can't know and why, but God's allowed that to take place. But that person's still responsible for injecting themselves with a drug. Other times, as I said before, a con man rings up a lady, an elderly person, and says you've got a problem with your computer or whatever, whatever story they use, and she's like totally innocent. As in she's not doing anything to elicit this person to ring her up or anything like that. And then um, she gets fleeced of five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Now she hasn't made a bad choice there as as such. Now perhaps she could have been a bit more wise in how she gave out her details. But you know, you can't explain that. You can't really wrap our head around there. Well, God, you're in all that, 
and you allowed that to take place. I can't, in the middle of it, I can't see what's happening. You know, maybe God does something there in that for that person to become a believer. They experience this really traumatic event in life. And this person looks at their bank account and says, I've lost $20,000. What's going wrong? Maybe God chooses to use that to actually, as it were, clear the fog to see God for the very first time. A lot of it is really unexplainable. At the end of the day, God doesn't ask us to understand him and his ways in every single way or possibility of life. God just tells us to believe in who he is and what he's done. So we can't give that answer in every instance, and there are some big, big questions there. John? Um, Could you explain how um, suffering produces character? Yep. Yeah, sure. Um, There's a passage... Uh, how suffering produces character. Thanks, Megan. Good, good point. Um, how suffering produces character. Uh, I think it's in Romans 5, 6. Paul has this sort of chain of things that take place in our lives. And uh, he gets this idea of challenges we go through and ends up where, uh, where hope is produced at the end. So the idea that we talk about is we go through the challenges of life. We experience that. It might knock us around. It may actually knock us over. It might cause us to doubt lots in life. But we get through that event, and what that does, it builds a deeper understanding of who God is, and out of that deeper understanding, it actually uh, makes our character more robust. So then the next time an example of that comes along, or the next time a real challenge in life comes along, I've actually got some experience that God got me through the last one, and my character is a little bit stronger. Yeah, you know, something else happens differently and then that might again just strengthen my character. And God doesn't waste anything in our lives when it comes to this suffering and this evil. He makes us stronger. So our character is getting formed and shaped and put in position by that. Helen. Yep. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Helen's spot on. I mean, the book of Job is a unique book that God has put in the Bible. I mean, it, it seems a strange fit in some ways, but for us who identify with suffering and challenges in life, Job becomes one of the most perhaps precious books to some people in the book of the Bible. Now, I look forward to meeting Job. I look forward to meeting Job because, I mean, Helen's right. When he's sitting in his office or wherever he's sitting, because we've got to think he's a real man like us, he's no different to you or I, he's sitting there and he's just probably planning something out for his farm or whatever, and his five or six servants walk in and say, Job, this has happened. Job, that's happened. Job, that's happened. Job, what your kids are He's probably just collapsed on the floor. I think I'd collapse on the floor if someone told me all that. Even his wife told him, just give it all up, forget it. So it's just amazing what Job goes through. But you're right, he doesn't know any of what's happening in the behind-the-scenes thing. He has three friends come along and they're, they're trying to convince Job over about, probably about who knows how many hours of debating and discussing, Job, you've done something wrong. That's why you've got all this trouble, Job. And Job can say, I've done nothing wrong. I'm just doing my life and I'm worshipping God and I'm just living life as a follower of God. No, Job, you've done something wrong. He says, no, I haven't done anything wrong. You go through this whole sort of 30 chapters of this sort of discussion going backwards and forwards. And then God remarkably steps in in a very powerful way at the end of Job and says, guys, you've got no idea what you're talking about. This is who I am. And God just sort of just, whoa, I do this, I do this, tell me that. Can you do that? I do this and I do this and I do this. Can you do that? I mean, it's a very powerful book, the book of Job. It can be confusing when you read through it for the first few times, but it's very powerful. And Job, you're right, Helen. At the end of it, Job had a whole new concept of who God was. 
totally new concept. God did. God did that time. He doesn't always do that, though. I have to be mindful. God, He did then. He did then, but He doesn't always do that. Go. Um, I can say um, without a doubt that um, in my years of suffering and that that's been pretty well ongoing, um, and even the last six months it um, had been traumatic, but the last two and a half years have been very good. But in all my suffering and discipline, I through God, I have found myself in a place so intimate with God that I wouldn't have not wanted to go through that suffering for what I've got me. Mm. Thanks, thanks, Carol. It's a good point. When you're in the middle of it, you don't really feel like that, but it's when you look back, though, and you see actually what God has done. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Appreciate that. Neville. If we trusted in Christ this life only, Paul says, we are the most miserable of all people. Yep. Um, you mentioned the point about the Psalms. The end. Yep. You preached earlier on eternity. We are such a small speck yep. in our lives in this life. Yep. Um, hope is a future thing as well. Yep. And that's the eternal hope we spoke about there in Revelation. I mean, you, you've got to take the big picture. If you just get swallowed up in the, um, in the heat of the moment, it, it, it will just swallow you. You'll just get totally uh, bound up by it. And it's a bit like, like Jane was saying before, when this idea of Jesus, and how does that change everything, Jesus gives this eternal perspective. He actually just opens our vision right up. It, it's not just right here and now, although it is a here and now because he gives sustaining hope, but the hope opens right up to eternal hope. So it could be that someone suffers in a wheelchair or that Joni Erickson... For those of you who followed her, I mean, she's a powerful witness and testimony for the sustaining grace of God through a life bound up basically as a quadriplegic. And now I think she's had breast cancer or battling breast cancer at the same time. You know, you think of a person who's struggling in life, she's got to have the end term, uh, the big picture view. And it is, it is, okay. I have this life, a journey, she's probably in her 60s. Who knows how much longer she might live? She might get to 80. It's 80 years, it's a long time. But when I put that in alongside eternity, it's just not even a grain of sand in the hourglass. It's nothing. Not measurable. So you need the big picture, that's right. Jen. You, you can't give a... Okay, Jen's asking the question we have today. Yep. Jen's asking the question, okay, how do you explain to a non-believer when somebody goes on a rampage in a car, does doughies in the middle of the Flinders Street clocks and then just goes up on a footpath and just mows over people and five people are killed? How do you explain that to a non-Christian? Um, you, you can't give a detailed explanation to say, hang on, that person who got killed, well, they probably did this ten years ago. You, you can't give that explanation at all. The best thing you can do is just... Um, commiserate with them firstly in their pain and that will take probably who knows how closely they are affected or touched by something like that and then maybe somewhere down the track hopefully out of that pain or suffering that person says what's wrong with this world what's wrong with this world that somebody can get in a car and just drive down a footpath and just mow people over like a lawnmower what possesses somebody to do that hopefully you're going to get down to the point where someone will say that or question that in their mind and then you can take them back to say the underlying cause or the foundation of all the pain and suffering in this world is we, have, we live in a world that has rebelled against its creator. Now that doesn't give the detail, but it actually gives the underlying explanation. And you can't do anything more than that other than then begin to point them to the hope that Jesus becomes to deliver us from this world. So, and, and again, if you're going to do that with somebody, you can't do it in the middle of their pain because they just their mind is too perhaps uh, twisted by the pain they're experiencing from that suffering and from that episode. You'd have to wait maybe weeks, maybe months, who knows, until you feel like they're in a space where they might come with that question. Okay, we, uh, we might finish with that. Can we just do one song to finish up, guys? That'd be really good. 
If anybody would like some prayer or like some further discussion, uh, more than happy to, to catch up with you. Thanks. Let's stand as we close with Desert Song.